up on today's show, Canada's role in oil and gas internationally. We'll chat with the Minister for Natural Resources, Jonathan Wilkinson. Can Russia's Vladimir Putin ultimately be prosecuted for war crimes in Ukraine after the pictures and videos coming out from Bucha, Ukraine this weekend? And could access to better mental health care be the silver lining in COVID-19? NATO and Europe remain united in opposition, of course, to Russia's actions in Ukraine, uh, even more so, I think, following the revelations of what's been happening in the area around Kyiv uh, and what, I mean, just absolute atrocities. Massive financial pressure being used, of course, to try and cripple the Russian economy. Up to a point, though. Russia is the world's fourth largest producer of crude oil, and more than a quarter of their annual revenue comes from that oil. And that continues almost completely intact right now. I mean, there's been some reduction, but um, the simple truth is large parts of Europe are completely dependent on Russian oil and gas, and they're not in a position to give up that resource. So they continue to import. And that's the reality that we've talked about a lot. There's the aspirational goals and targets and things that leaders say they want to do and would like to do. And then there's the reality of what they have to do. And those things just don't always line up. So now a number of other countries, as you know, have been approached to try and increase their capacity and their production to try and offset any reduction in oil and gas from Russia, should Europe go that route. Joining us now to talk about Canada's role in that is Jonathan Wilkinson, the Minister for Natural Resources with the Federal Government of Canada. Uh, Minister, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Not at all. Thanks for having me. So, uh, of course, Canada has announced their plans to try and um, increase their production and help Europe reduce their reliance on Russian oil. But how much of a difference are we talking about here? I mean, it's it's not huge, is it? It's not huge. Um, I guess uh, what Europe is looking for is a couple of things. The first is to see what other countries can do to help them displace supplies that are coming from Russia um, and and to help to stabilize global energy markets. Um, but they are also looking to, you know, very greatly accelerate the transition away from dependence on oil and gas towards renewables and hydrogen. And so Canada is doing what it can to uh, to help with that displacement. We're not the only country. We've announced that we are looking to increase production by about 300,000 barrels a day. Brazil announced the same the same number. Uh, the United States has announced over a million barrels of oil and, and significant quantities of gas. So together, the international community is looking to do everything we can to help our, our friends and allies in Europe. In terms of percentages, um, what we're doing and what the rest of the world has been able to do so far, how much would that replace in terms of what is being imported from Russia by Europe right now? Well, it's still a relatively small amount. Um, it depends a little bit on oil and gas, but it's it's probably less than a quarter of, of what has uh, historically been imported um, by, uh, by um, Europe from mm. Russia. Um, and so, you know, the, there is going to need to be additional work to see what can be done with respect to enhancing supplies. But as I say, the real um, focus for Europe uh, beyond the next couple of years, and the next couple of years are obviously important, but beyond the next couple of years is figuring out how they can actually reduce their dependence and become more energy secure domestically. And that's through deployment of renewables, deployment of zero emission vehicles, and and, uh, looking at stable uh, supplies of things like hydrogen from countries like Canada. Like you say, I think those are the aspirational goals that I was talking about earlier. And I'm sure you're right. That is part of Europe's plan for the long term, but it means nothing to the people of Ukraine right now. It means nothing to Vladimir Putin right now. I mean, we're in the middle of a conflict. Does that really even enter into this conversation? I mean, we're dealing with the here and now with people dying and being executed in the street. Why are we talking about three, four years down the road? Well, you, you are absolutely right. I mean, this illegal and brutal invasion by Russia, um, and, and we're seeing, you know, obviously, 
terrible pictures coming out of Ukraine right now. Um, you know, the, the international community, and particularly the Europe and, and North America, have united to, to do everything that we possibly can to support European countries and to support Ukraine. And with respect to Ukraine, as you know, that includes not only humanitarian assistance, it includes military assistance that, is, uh, that has been uh, sent from Canada and from a range of other countries. Um, we are, as, as I say, doing everything we can to help Europe in terms of reducing dependence on Russian oil and gas. But as you as you will also be aware, the dependence is a significant one. And so while we can reduce it somewhat in the short term, we've got to be looking at the medium term and trying to ensure that, that Europe can be energy independent going forward. Um, in terms of what industry can do, I know we've talked about it a lot here in this province, of course. I mean, this is where a lot of the industry is centered. And they say bigger increases really aren't in the cards given the current environment that they're in. They're running at close to capacity already. We have the labor shortage that they're trying to deal with. And frankly, they're not investing in a lot of new projects right now, and their investors are asking them not to expend a lot of capital in that way. So have you consulted with industry? Have you had some meetings with them? And are you confident that they're willing to sort of change their planning a little bit on this? Yeah, we've had lots of consultation with industry uh, as part of uh, getting to uh, the commitment that we would look to increase production. Um, and certainly that was that was ongoing for several weeks before we made that commitment alongside some of our, our uh, allies. Um, but certainly we are always uh, in ongoing conversations with industry. I'm in Calgary today to have uh, several meetings with a lot of the different folks in industry to talk about a range of issues, including energy security. Um, in terms of our province's response to this, I'm sure you're, you're aware of what you know, our energy minister said. We could do so much more, saying, you know, as a country, we, we could provide a lot more oil on a daily basis, up to a million and a half barrels, if you know, we were in a position to increase pipeline capacity and increase export, increase export infrastructure. Both of those things would, would help our country actually make a more meaningful contribution. Again, those are a little bit longer term, but is that something that, you know, you could work with the Alberta government on and saying, if you really want to displace Russian oil and gas, um, this is a way we could do it in a much larger way. So, I mean, certainly we're interested in working collaboratively with, with the government of Alberta and certainly with industry on, on a range of those kinds of issues. I would say to you that I think the, the bigger opportunity in the short term for Canada is probably LNG and looking to actually develop um, projects that could be relatively short term in nature in terms of getting to the point where you can send LNG to displace Russian gas. Um, I would also say, though, that if you think about the longer term, the 8 to 10 to 15 year period, the focus of the world continues to be on accelerating the transition away from the combustion of hydrocarbon fuels. I mean, climate change hasn't gone away. Um, and so any of the investments that we're looking to make have to be workable in the context of that transition. LNG certainly can be, because you can actually take LNG and convert it to hydrogen um, in a non-carbon polluting way. Um, and so that's, that's going to be a continuing conversation that we're having with industry, is how do we actually play a role there that will be consistent with the need for us to actually move through the transition over the coming decades. Um, and, and like you say, we, we know that the, the federal government came out with a new plan, uh, the 2030 plan last week. Um, when you talk about increasing oil and gas production, uh, you know, it, it's incremental, I understand that. But at the same time, does that not directly contradict what we're hearing from the prime minister in terms of the 2030 plan? No, I don't think it does. Um, you know, there are some who say the energy security challenges that we and, and Europe face at this point mean that we should just forget about fighting climate change. Well, that, that would be wrong and that would be just scientifically ridiculous. 
Um, there are others who say that we shouldn't do anything to help our allies in Europe because it would impact our ability to meet our climate targets. And I would, I would just say to you, look, we've got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, we, can, we can move forward in a way that helps our allies, which, of course, we want to help our allies at this terrible, you know, very difficult time for them. But to do so in a manner that will actually be accommodated within our climate plan. And that's exactly what we are aiming to do. Um, Minister, of course, being the Natural Resources Minister, you know that there's constantly a discussion, an argument at sometimes between uh, Alberta and Ottawa on this file. I just want to play for you something that was said by our Premier this weekend on the radio, talking about the plan and what's going forward. He calls it a full frontal attack on the people who work in the energy sector. Explicit is a reduction in oil and gas production, which would just shift energy production from Canada to places like Putin's Russia and the OPEC dictatorships. This policy is, it's nuts. So he says the policy is nuts, and it actually does the exact opposite of what you're telling us the goals of the government are. Well, I, I certainly wouldn't agree with the Premier on that. And I think if he read the plan, he would see that, that it is explicit in the sense that there is no uh, no impact on production. This is about emissions. Um, it is important for us to remember that the, the threat and the, uh, the challenge of climate change has not gone away. We need to actually manage that as well. And I would say to the Premier that it's important, I think, for both of us to be talking to industry. The Pathways Group here in Alberta committed to net zero uh, by 2050. The federal government has said, has welcomed that and has engaged them. And how do we actually make that work? How do we actually collaborate to make reductions in emissions that we need to on a pathway to net zero? That's what the plan last week was about. And I would encourage the Premier to read it and to talk to the industry. Uh, last one, and then I'll let you go. And I appreciate your time, Minister. Would it be... My impression is you're kind of stuck in between a rock and a hard place here, because, uh, and the government is, generally speaking, because at one hand, you're saying we need to support Ukraine, we need to punish Russia, and the easiest way and the most effective way to do that is to limit their ability to export their oil to continue to fund this war effort. We know that's where 26% of their revenue comes from. We have the capacity to do that to a certain extent, but at the same time, doing so flies in the face of our ambitious statements and goals on climate change. Are you sort of trying to serve two masters and finding it difficult? Well, I think, you know, Canadians expect that, that folks that they elect to, to govern are going to do things in a thoughtful and judicious way. And I do think that you can address both. I mean, let, let's be clear, when we send oil or gas to, to Europe and it gets combusted in cars or heating homes, there is zero incremental carbon emissions uh, when you're displacing Russian oil and gas. So what we have to focus on are the production emissions that are associated with extracting those fuels. And we are working every day with industry to reduce those. I mean, the methane regulations we brought into place are exactly about that, as are a whole range of other things, including the carbon capture and sequestration tax credit, which uh, which we've signaled will be in a, in the upcoming budget. Um, so we're we're focused on working collaboratively with industry. And I would tell you that the meetings that I've had with industry over the past number of months, and I'm sure the meetings I will have today, are very positive and constructive. Minister, I appreciate your time so much. Thanks for joining us this morning. Not at all. Thank you for having me. That is Jonathan Wilkinson, who is the Federal Minister of Natural Resources. All right, uh, we're going to talk now about the situation in Ukraine that emerged over the course of the weekend. And I'm not one for warnings. You know, this could be disturbing. I, I, I think they get used a lot, and as somebody who had to read them a lot over the course of my TV news career, I was never a big fan because I think, you know, we, we throw it around and it sort of diminishes the value of it. But I think in this case, it, it might make sense um, as we talk about some of the things that were uncovered 
in towns and communities near Kiev um, as the Russian troops pulled back and Ukrainian forces moved back in. Um, yeah, it's disturbing, pure and simple. There's no two ways to put it. And I don't want to have to sort of um, tiptoe around uh, what we're talking about here. So there you go. There's your warning. We're going to be talking about some pretty disturbing uh, subject matter here. Um, basically, just to bring you up to speed on the situation, what happened is uh, over the weekend, it started to emerge as Ukrainian forces, as I say, moved back into uh, a number of communities near Kiev. Okay, one of them, the one you're hearing most about today, is Bucha, which is a town of roughly 35,000 people. Uh, and there, in the streets, bodies of what appear to be civilians have been found, many of them. There's also mass graves. Um, Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Koleba says some of these civilian casualty scenes are just absolutely brutal. Russia is uh, worse than ISIS in the, it's in the scale and the ruthlessness of the crimes committed. We all uh, refer to Bucha, but we should not forget about other towns and villages in the Kiev region, which uh, also uh, became the crime scene for Russian army. So the deputy mayor of Bucha says 50 of um, some 300 bodies found were the victims of what they're calling extrajudicial killings carried out by the Russians. Now, the Kremlin continues to reject all of these allegations, saying um, it's not true. Um, they're denying that they were basically taking part in this. But there are videos and there are pictures of bodies of people in civilian clothes, um, who appear to have been killed at close range, um, some of them wrapped in plastic bound with tape and thrown into a ditch. Others, you can clearly see their hands have been tied behind their back. So um, clearly, based on what we're seeing, uh, it looks like, it looks like clear indications of war crimes. But what does that mean? We're going to chat now with Valerie Oosterville, who's an associate director of Western University's Center for Transitional Justice and Post-Conflict Reconstruction, she is also a member of the Canadian Partnership for International Justice. Uh, Valerie, thank you for joining us once again. I really appreciate your time. Hello. Taking a look at what we saw emerge over the weekend, just give us your characterization of what we saw coming out of Bucha and other areas around Kiev. So what we've seen images of are what looks like to be intentional, direct attacks against civilians, and indiscriminate attacks, and that there has been quite a bit of murder going on in the Russian-controlled areas, or formerly Russian-controlled areas, uh, just around Kyiv. So, war crime. W explain to us the meaning of that. What rises to the level of a war crime, and what does it mean if somebody has committed a war crime? Sure. So a war crime is a very serious type of violation of what's called international humanitarian law. That's the law that governs the means and methods of warfare. There's another type of crime also um, that comes into play in this situation called crimes against humanity. This is a widespread or systematic attack directed against the civilian population. And um, the facts can fall into both categories of crime. These are the types of crimes that are being investigated by the International Criminal Court's prosecutor in Ukraine, as well as the 
prosecutor general of Ukraine in partnership with Lithuania and Poland in a joint investigation, as well as many other European countries. Uh, yeah, and like you say, I mean, uh, Joe Biden talking today about how Putin is a war criminal, uh, France, UK, Germany, even Canada, saying that this kind of behavior can't be tolerated. So what does that mean? What do they do? Um, um, and how, from what I understand, any kind of action around this would likely take years and years, correct? Well, war crimes investigations tend to take time because they're incredibly complex and the evidence takes time simply just to um, to gather, to analyze, and then to put forward in, a, in an arrest warrant and then get someone before a court. It, it's often the getting someone before a court, which is the longest period of time. So we have the International Criminal Court's prosecutor and his team already operating in Ukraine. Um, they are trying to collect the evidence that has sort of come out on the weekend. So that could be uh, satellite images plus journalistic images that have been taken. But they have to also ensure that that evidence doesn't get tainted in any way, shape or form, because otherwise then it's subject to the sorts of allegations that Russia is making about tainted evidence. Um, Yes, sorry. I'm just wondering, like when we talk about evidence and things like that, I mean, obviously we don't know for sure, but just based on what we've seen, you know, the bombing of hospitals, um, maternity hospitals, um, what we saw, you know, the mass grave is, it's a mass grave. We saw the pictures. I mean, I imagine it has to be investigated to make sure that it's, it's actually what we're seeing. But based on what we're seeing, have we reached that level, that standard of proof that you talk about? Well, it certainly looks like it. And I mean, I think we've reached that a long time ago with the indiscriminate attacks taking place at hospitals, schools, yeah. humanitarian convoys, etc., all across the country. But here we have uh, direct um, images of what, what, what existed as soon as the, the Russian troops had evacuated. So that's within what was an occupied territory. And the, the this sort of evidence, uh, I mean, I, I do think it supports claims that war crimes have taken place and crimes against humanity have taken place. Um, but it's usually courts that would rule on that in order to assign that uh, kind of label. And that is the part that takes time, unfortunately. Um when we take a look at this, and people are saying, you know, and Biden's saying that Putin is a war criminal. So is that who would be charged? Like, what with what we're seeing, you know, I've heard some analysts say it looks like troops out of control. It's not necessarily directed by military leaders who would be directed by Putin. Ultimately, I guess the question is, who gets charged? Who gets held accountable for this? Well, anyone from the foot soldier all the way up to President Putin could be charged. The What happens in war crimes prosecutions and crimes against humanity prosecutions is it becomes harder and harder to uh, prove the direct link to the highest right. person, so to President Putin. Um, it, it's easier to get witness evidence, for example, of the foot soldiers on the ground, maybe even of their commanders in the area. But then once you get beyond that, so once you get to those who are giving uh, orders from Russia, you need something like an insider witness or satellite intercepts of orders. Uh, NATO countries might have those. We don't know that. Or you need someone who's willing to turn and become an insider witness. That's the sort of difficulties that the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has in linking someone at the very top to crimes that have happened on the ground. Um, good question from one of our listeners, and 
It's a fair question. We've talked so much about what the world can do. You know, we've got the economic sanctions and uh, there's the support militarily, not with forces, but with equipment and with funding and all the rest. Um, In sort of sitting back and, and letting this continue, is there a way, two questions, is there a way to stop it? Um, short of military action. I mean, we, I, I don't know how much stock a lot of us put in the international court being all that effective, especially, you know, given Russia's influence on the UN. Um, is there a way to stop it legally, um, or is it all after the fact? And do other countries become somewhat culpable in this for not taking more action uh, as it's unfolding? The International Criminal Court was never going to be the full answer to addressing what's going on in Ukraine because the response, the the only way to have a a truly effective response is through um, military action. So political will is needed for that. And right now, as you know, NATO has decided not to become involved in that way. Um, The International Criminal Court is responsive rather than uh, proactive in terms of stopping a conflict. Um, in terms of whether countries could be or individuals could be held liable for not acting, um, it's unlikely that the only judicial bodies that are looking at this, the International Criminal Court and the various investigations going on in countries in Europe, would focus on that as opposed to focus on who has actually carried out the crimes. But in theory, there could potentially be state responsibility uh, there's just not necessarily a venue to right. an international venue to, to hold a state liable for not acting. I appreciate your time so much. Last one, and then I'll let you go. Do we have any historical precedent going back to World War II, the Nazis, anything like that, any way that we can sort of point to and say, you, you know, this is the way, or Bosnia, something like that, where we can say this is how the International Criminal Court works, and this is what we can expect in this instance? Oh, absolutely. Some, unfortunately, some similar types of crimes happened in Bosnia. So the former, the court of the former Yugoslavia um, has some case precedent that the International Criminal Court could point to and say, this looks like that. Uh, mass graves, shooting of civilians, etc. Um, but I mean, in a- any place where we've had an international court, we've had, unfortunately, similar uh, executions of civilians and whatnot. So there is precedent. Um, Valerie, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. That is Valerie Oosterveld. We've had her on the show before, Associate Director of Western University Centre for Transitional Justice and Post-Conflict Reconstruction. She's also a member of the Canadian Partnership for International Justice. Okay, going to switch gears here for a few minutes and have a discussion about something that we've talked about a lot over the course of two years now uh, as this whole pandemic played out. There's been lots of talk about the impact that it's had on our mental health, children's mental health. Actually, there's a story out today saying that, um, you know, what we'd warned of for two years, the impacts on mental health uh, in children, we're starting to see it play out particularly at school now. There's more depression, there's more fights, there's panic attacks, eating disorders. It's been a tough goal for all of us, right? And I think kids perhaps more so than anybody else. Now, now that we're to wherever we are, and I, I understand all the prognosticators saying we might be heading into yet another wave and all that, we'll deal with that when it comes. But in the meantime, um, what are some of the 
things that have changed. We've talked a lot about the way, you know, the way that we work has changed, the way that we shop, the way that we socialize. Um, the common theme through many of these changes that the pandemic forced upon us was uh, the internet, right? A lot of things went online, online meetings, online shopping, work from home, on and on it went. Uh, we changed it up because we had to, but some of those strategies that we adopted work so well, they're not going anywhere. They're going to be part of the way that we do business, the way that we do all kinds of things going forward because they work. And one of those things is the way we access healthcare. And this could be a silver lining to the mess of COVID-19. Joining us to talk about that now, we have Dr. Nicole Letourneau, who is a professor and researcher at the Faculty of Nursing at the University of Calgary. Doctor, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So many things changed. So many things sort of had to change, right? It's often you're forced into doing things in a different way and you start to realize, hey, this worked out pretty well. When we talk about accessing healthcare and mental healthcare, a lot of that went online, which, you know, it wasn't unheard of before, was it? I mean, it became more commonplace, but it's not entirely brand new. No, it's not brand new. And in fact, uh, you know, the World Health Organization in around 2013 recommended that we offer flexibility in terms of the, the way that we provide mental health care. And, um, uh, you know, reviews of the, all the research that predate COVID show as well that video-based, video technology-based uh, mental health care counseling and that sort of thing is just as effective as in-person care. But it really took COVID to change everyone's comfort level with using the technology and tools, not just the patients, but also the healthcare providers. I think uh, we're all inspired together to provide needed, very important needed care in ways that while they were recommended and shown to work before, we just didn't, we just didn't do as effectively until we, until COVID. So is it just a matter of, okay, it's there, we know it's there, but we're used to doing this. This is the way that we've done things. So we're going to keep doing it. And then suddenly with the pandemic, okay, you can't do it that way. You better come up with a new way. So, so you try out some of the things that have been there and say, Hey, this actually works pretty well. Yeah, you know, that expression, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Well, we didn't have to invent per se, but we really had to increase our comfort with using these tools because, you know, you couldn't, you, well, you know, I guess you could still go to Emerge, but you probably didn't want to. Um, you know, yeah. the access to in-person care is just not going to be there. And, and as you pointed out in your intro, the mental health problems really soared um, during the pandemic. There was you know, lots of data to show that, and I know, have lots of colleagues for sure, that spoke about, wow, the, the surge in, in ch- children um, sh- uh, presenting with serious problems. And we just had to do something about it. So so the Internet, you know, yeah. is, is the answer. What kind of changes did we need to make? I mean, I know government stepped in with sort of some funding and, and to try and mm-hmm. make it a little more easy. Um, those kinds of things. How many of those extra interventions were needed to get it to the place where it is now? Yeah, well, you know, it's been, a, I would say, this team effort, and I don't think people really realize they're part of a team, but whether it was uh, government uh, health service providers that were pivoting and changing how they delivered their care to independent counseling and psycholo- you know, psychology services and communities that were also delivering care differently, but everyone just had to change. And, yeah. you know, certainly patient demand was a huge part of that. Patients didn't want to go um, to hospitals. And... Nor, you know, there's always been this problem of stigma around mental health care, uh, the stigma of, of showing up at a clinic. Um, mental health care is a little different than other sorts of yeah. diseases because, you know, as much as we'd like to say we don't 
you know, it's the same as any other disease. There is a, a greater stigma sometimes attached to needing mental health care. So patients also were able to benefit from not having to be showing up at a mental health clinic where they might be concerned about stigma. The other thing that's really, really great about the online and digital modalities for delivering these sorts of services is that some of the symptoms of mental health disorders like fatigue that goes with depression and stuff like that um, would prevent people from going to appointments. Whereas if it's just, you know, you just have to turn on your computer yeah. and log into Zoom, um, you know, no one cares if you've cleaned your house that day. <laughs> you know, you're not, you're not, no one cares if you've, uh, you know, you got your makeup on just right or whatever. It's you can have that important counseling session in the comfort of your own home. You don't need to worry about even child care, yeah. you know. So in my own research where we work with mothers who present with depression after having a baby, uh, that's really been a godsend to have them not need to leave, not need to worry about cleaning of the house or, you know, how they look that day or even to worry about having to get childcare. So there's been so many advantages, I think, that we have realized now with delivering mental health care this way. And I, you know, so the reason I wrote the article for the Global Mail was that we just can't lose sight of those advantages. And um, even groups like the World Health Organization recommend that we need flexibility. You know, some people still always want to have in-person care, and we need to be able to provide that. Um, but it's giving people the flexibility to receive the mental health services that they need uh, using the multiple ways that we can provide it now. We know we can do it online, and um, we know, you know, we could always, we've always been able to deliver it in person and by the phone, and people just need to be able to retain that flexibility to receive the health care they need. And, um, you know, I was glad to hear, I was just sort of checking around what's happening here in our province, and it sounds as though that's what's happening here in Alberta, is that flexibility is going to be retained. And I just hope we keep that flexibility over the long term. It'll help so many more people if we uh, if we can continue on this on this good course, which is a one of those silver linings. I as I said in the article um, about about COVID. I'm wondering. Uh, yeah, I, I've been in therapy numerous times, and I've been in a lot of online meetings and things like that. And I think I'm I'm different. Maybe maybe it's just me, but I'm wondering: Does being online as opposed to being in an office setting, one-on-one, you know, that intimacy, um, it, it's, it's different to me. Being on the phone is different. Being in a virtual meeting is different than it is being in the room. Um, do you notice that, or, or am I, am I, is this just yet another long list of ways that I'm strange? Um, or is this something that happens with a lot of people, and does it change the dynamic and, and the whole, the way that therapy operates? Well, those are, that's a really great observation, and I think that's one of the reasons why Generally, you know, the experts are recommending let's keep it flexible because different yeah. people have different needs or different um, pre- um, preferences. I think the jury's out. I had to, I'd have to go and look at the research, but I don't think uh, there's been a lot of research yet to see, you know, what kind of people prefer what kind of um, care. And that would that'd be a great question, I think. Maybe one of the things that will come out of this is how to figure out who might want it and who might uh, want it, you know, care in a different way. But um, certainly... Some people, you know, just even anecdotally, you know, you talk to people who've had to work from home. Some people hate it. Yeah. Some people miss the water cooler. Some people really like it, you know. So I think it's very similar, likely, with uh, people that need mental health care as well. Just have different preferences. And But the great thing about, one of the great things I didn't, didn't mention is the mental health care provided virtually or over the Internet also enables so many more people to get access. You don't have to live in a major urban center to get, um, you know, care. You could just go online. And uh, if you're someone that, you know, that if you can't get to see someone in person, 
the next best thing might be to be able to see them on a camera um, from your home in some rural part of Alberta. Is it... Did we find any, expose any limitations? I mean, I think a lot of these things around the pandemic, we were sort of forced into do, doing things in a different way and, and recognize, okay, we, we can do it, but this is an issue that we're going to have to address. What, what came up with sort of online mental health? I mean, you say access is, is improved. Is it, is it hindered in some other ways? Like maybe you can't get access to the internet. Are there some, some choke points that we've identified here? Well, you've identified one right there, and uh, it needs to be a, a federal priority that everybody in every part of the country, regardless of postal code, has access to good quality Internet so that we can provide those that flexibility of, of delivery of service. So that's one thing that will be considered a choke point, and I think that that's been recognized by the government, and I think it's the feds. I think they've been talking about trying to make that a reality for some time. I'm sure there's some challenges around yeah. that, but that seems really important. You know, if we want to make sure that we, you know, Meet the um, uh, the aims of the of the um, the act that governs how healthcare is delivered in the country. Accessibility is an important point. So that's one. The other thing that I really think came to people's attention early on and was mostly resolved, but I felt that probably there's work to be done was around privacy concerns. You probably remember those Zoom meetings being bombed by people, <laughs> those sorts of yes. things. There were some concerns about that, you know, especially with mental health care, you really, confidentiality and privacy are paramount. So um, some, a lot of the concerns were taken care of by some of the large providers of, of sort of internet uh, video-based services like Zoom and that kind of thing. But I know in my own work, we uh, where we work with mothers with depression, worked with a, a colleague, Dr. Linda Duffel-Legier at the University of Calgary, and we developed our own app that uh, had far greater security features than than, uh, than some of the things that you could just buy. And I suspect that that will be a way that a lot of um, service providers across the country will ultimately be going, is, is looking for those tools that provide more functions and, and, more, and greater security and things that are super easy for, for patients to use. You know, a patient who's in a mental health crisis, you're not going to be saying, well, you have to click this and click that yeah, and go yeah. here and, and reset your cookies. And <laughs> You know, you've got to make sure that access really is meaningful. So I think those are some of the, 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 the ongoing concerns. But, you know, people are getting more and more tech savvy sure. all the time and, uh, and technology is getting better all the time. So I, I have a lot of confidence that we'll be able to manage all of those challenges. Totally. Because yeah. it, it, it works so well, gives so many more people access and it's less stigmatizing and more convenient, like, you know, yeah, we'll work all those. We'll, we'll, we'll work the bugs out. We always do. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Internal, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a great topic. Glad you gave some attention to it. Yeah, appreciate it very much. That is uh, Dr. Nicole Letourneau, a professor and researcher at the Faculty of Nursing at the University of Calgary. And uh, yeah, just uh, back to that story I was telling you before we got started here, uh, you know, Experts are now saying that they're starting to see kids acting out in schools and things like that. And not surprising. I mean, it's really interesting. I have two kids. Well, I call them kids. Uh, my daughter's going to be 21 in a week or two. Man, the other kid's 18. So um, not really kids. But at the same time, they you know, when this started, uh, one had just entered college and the other one was still in high school. And it's really interesting because the boy's like me. You know, he's fine to just stay home and not have people around. He's, he, he's, that's fine. We, we're, we're built for pandemic living uh, in a lot of ways. Daughter is the exact opposite. Very social, never home, always running around doing this, going here. You know, I mean, that's that was her life. So she took it a lot tougher, I think, than the boy did. The boy was fine. You know, he existed primarily online with his friends, and that was totally normal for him. Not a problem. So I think, you know, having 
this flexibility and this versatility. And it's the same thing when we talked about working, right? Going back to work, return to office, they call it, and the hybrid workplace and how that's something that employers now need to offer when they're looking to try and recruit people with the labor situation that we have. You need to have this offer of, um, okay, we're going to have a work from home or work from home two days a week or three days, or whatever the case may be, because we were forced into a position where we had to try and do things differently. We couldn't do things the way we had always done them because we weren't allowed to go places, right? So a lot of it moved online, um, and it worked for some people. Didn't work for everybody, though. Um, And uh, as she said, some of those issues that we identified as we did this, where we realized, okay, it doesn't work for everybody, and this is why not, and this is what we need to improve upon. But, um, yeah, I mean, get used to it. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.